Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is early August. I have returned from Hawaii. I am here today with with uh, Tammy and um, Ariel Angel. Ariel is the editor in chief of Jewish Currents. Um, somebody that's an organization that we've had a lot of interactions with in the three years that we've been doing this. It's a magazine committed to the rich tradition of thought activism and culture on the Jewish left and the left more broadly. Ariel's also an artist and a fiction writer um, and is from Miami. I don't know Miami. about that anymore. Okay. Let's be real. Right. Okay. That's like me. You can I strike that you, from the record. I feel like both of you guys have this like denialism around your fiction past. Oh man, but I haven't. No, really... I, I've disowned it completely. I'm not. I'm not right. claiming that anymore. Yeah. I haven't written a word of fiction in like 12 years, maybe more, 15 years. But sometimes people will come up to me and be like, "I, you know, it's very rare." But they'll say, "I liked your novel," and um, "Are you going to write another one?" And I'll be like, and I'll say, like, you know, I'd really love to. <laughs> Do you mean it? No, 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 no. But in my when I say it, I believe it, you know, because I get this like I think it's a flattery of somebody saying they enjoyed my novel. Yeah, and it kind of whips me up into a very small temporary moment where I'm like, maybe I would do that again. But then, of course, you know, nothing ever really happens. But yeah, I'm with you um, on on uh, fiction is hard. It's like lonely and well. Also, there's a lot of stuff happening. Like I, I don't know. Yeah, I just feel like there's better things to do right now. It doesn't feel like the form of the moment. I, I know that sounds fucked up to say, and I'm sure a lot of great fiction is being written, but it just, <laughs> I, I don't know. That's how I felt about poetry. I used to write a lot of it. And I kind of, mm-hmm. at some moment, politically was sort of like, I feel like I don't communicate any ideas. Podcasts are the form of the, they're the new. <laughs> oh no. Nobody <laughs> reads any don't of the shit it. we write, guys. Podcasts <laughs> are the new podcasts. novels. Yeah, especially. honestly, that may be true at this point for <laughs> Jewish Currents. I mean, like, a lot of our readers just now consume the podcast and read, like, only our shortest work or something. Like, that's, like, a trend that we're noticing. Yeah. Like, we're watching, like, the decline of literacy in real time. That's yeah. like the, the New York Times, too, and the New Yorker, I think. I think their podcasts are way more popular than the actual Is it? text. I don't know. I think the New York Times probably that might not be true. I don't know if it's true at the New Yorker or not, but it could be true is the thing. You know, it's like people there are a lot of organizations that are kind of like that, where mm-hmm. the podcast quietly is like making all the money for the organization and the blog just kind of or the whatever the text just kind of <laughs> is, is there as almost like a legacy concern. But it's it's uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of understand it because it's so much more personal and people want to have like yeah. a personal relationship with the publication or the people writing it, I guess, but it's harder to do. And um, so, yeah, you also are a podcaster then. Can we say that? I mean, <laughs> very reluctantly. I think okay, the well, only thing I can say for sure at this point is that I'm the editor in chief of Jewish Guards. <laughs> all right. But I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to drop one more on you, which oh, is, no, uh, and this is the first thing we're going to talk about, which is that, you are a believer in UFOs. Yes. Okay. Thank good. you. Thank you so much for asking me about the this. only other identifier. This is the only other identifier that I'm willing to take on. Yes. Um, I'm so okay, well, excited that someone is going to talk to me about this. So 
Well, I wanted to talk about it and Tammy wanted to talk about it too, because I think it's like, uh, especially with a true believer such as yourself, because I don't, <laughs> I personally have been following this news for, I would say it's what now, three years since like the New York Times first published a piece. Where Technically it was like, six, it was 2017. Oh, it was 2017. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's been a while. And every, once the Times sort of published that story, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, they're real, you know? And then I sort of followed it, but not that closely. I think I was waiting for Trump to just release everything at uh-huh. some point. Like but much Trump like- doesn't know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's, for a while, this was like really getting to me because I was like, if the president knows, then Trump knows. And then it can't be real because if he knew, he would tell us. But now it turns out that because I never I never really knew how to assimilate all the like deep state theories of like how deep people in the government know that are not the, you know, president and Congress. And now it just seems like all of that stuff is true. Like it's just so deep in the intelligence community that that Congress and the president don't know. All right. So like just setting the table a little bit, it's that, you know, these reports start coming out that (laughs) these uh, sort of defense or, you know, Air Force or Navy pilots are seeing things and that there's really shaky footage that does look kind of crazy and it shows objects moving at a speed and at a type of flight path that no man-made object can do can do and that there's sort of definitive proof when people look at these videos forensically that this is clearly not like a blip on or like a or or an optical illusion made by like the camera or something like that or like a bug going across the you know there have been a lot of those kinds of things right right so did that was that the beginning of your interest in this or did it start earlier than that and in fact like the the (laughs) (laughs) those videos for me i was like these are okay but like i have no idea what's happening in these videos the thing for me from the beginning so i've i've been on this train for a really long time really since i was a kid and i saw like probably one of these like weird dinky history channel um Mm -hmm. documentaries on roswell i used to watch those too yeah and the thing that did it for me i mean like a lot about roswell doesn't add up and honestly like i kind of wonder this whole time i mean one of the big things that has just happened is we had this congressional hearing on July 26th. It's kind of unprecedented. Um, And this guy, David Grush, who's like top secret clearance in the Pentagon is kind of alleging that we have uh, exotic craft of exotic origin and like, you know, non-human biologics, in other words, alien bodies and ships um, that we've recovered from crashes. Um, I'm like sort of wondering if all this is actually about Roswell, like if that's what they're describing. I mean, basically, um, you know, it never made a lot of sense. Like the fact that the U.S. government would mistake a weather, like a, a spaceship that was described in some detail with a weather balloon, mm-hmm. it just didn't make sense. And then also just the thing that found that felt the most definitive to me is that you had the people who recovered it, the farmers who recovered um, the craft or, you know, who's on whose property it crashed on and all these military guys on their deathbeds being like, yeah, we did this. We saw this. It happened. You know, for me, I don't know. This is a really weird and and I've never said this out loud. So obviously I'm going to say it now. Um, This is a really weird parallel to make, but like, it's kind of like, sexual assault or something. It's like you have to sort of believe people when they tell you what has happened to them because there isn't a lot of 
other ways of knowing. There's not a lot of, you know, especially because a lot of these things that have happened have happened in ways where there wouldn't be a lot of witnesses. Although there are some things that have had a lot of witnesses and we can put that aside for a minute. Um, But yeah, I was like, if all of these people are corroborating the story on their deathbeds, why are they, why would they lie about this? That, that to me, like was always, always stuck in my mind. And um, there's just been over time, a lot of other things that I've consumed. And some of the most interesting evidence comes from military people. And, and, and in fact, like, I can't remember exactly when this was, but at a certain point, a bunch of generals got together and gave this uh, documented press conference that was like, we really need to know more about this. All of our nuclear facilities have had close encounters with something that can interfere with their, you know, whatever they do there, interfere with their whatever buttons and levers and whatever they can do. And like, we need to know what it is. And everyone is just kind of dismissing this, you know, and I don't know. There's also just like a lot of kind of mass sightings. Like there's a really great one from 2006 at the Chicago O'Hare airport where like all of ground traffic control and the pilots and the stewardesses and everybody there saw the thing, which kind of went up into the clouds and made a hole in the cloud. And nobody would like, nobody knew what to do about it. No one knew how to report it, you know, but everybody saw it, you know, And so there are like, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but just for me, it comes down to the fact of like, why would all these people lie? And, and then, you know, I think there's a lot of what people end up saying to me is like, well, it's probably just technology that we have that we're not talking about. And I'm, I guess I'm sort of open to that, except that there have also been all, you know, there's a lot of things that people say. I mean, we get into like abductions or like actual encounters I'm kind of agnostic on some of those things, but again, like I just believe a lot more of these people than I think a lot of people do. Now, again, 99, not again, I didn't say this yet. 99% of all of it is, is bullshit. And like anyone who is into UFOs will tell you that like most things that people think are UFOs are actually not UFOs. Mm -hmm. But I think something that really just stands out if you watch this long enough is just that there are some really strong cases out there, including the Nimitz, which is why the guy, um, which is the one that was in 2017 on the front page of the New York Times, which is why that guy was one of the people who testified at the congressional hearing. You know, there's radar, there's all kinds of stuff around this that is just totally unexplained and that people within the intelligence community are saying, this is not our tech and nothing that we know of can move this way. So... Why do you think there would be suppression of this information, though, right? Like, I mean, I understand Roswell, maybe that's why. But if there was a, you know, if you think the most cynically possible, it seems like the Defense Department would be incentivized to tell people that there are these UFOs and that they need more funding to combat them, right? Like, what, what, do, you think the, what do you think the reasoning is behind the suppression of it? Yeah, I mean, I do think that um, a lot of, this stuff started happening around like nuclear activity. I mean, that's what a lot of people say. And also you have to take into account like Cold War stuff. Like if what Grush is saying is true and they have recovered craft, then it's very possible that, I mean, a lot of things become possible at that point. Like then we have to think that probably some of the technology that we use now comes from that or like that that's at least in the realm of possibility. And, or, you know, or that like there's a, 
question about retrieving that kind of technology from the craft. And so then you may not want other governments to know what you have. So that might be one reason. But this part of things, I really have no idea about. Like, I'm not like, like the part of this that is all deep state conspiracy confuses the hell out of me. I'm just like interested in the fact that there are regular people who are having these experiences and and that like everyone thinks they're crazy. And like a lot of them have been through a lot of psychological like there's this Harvard uh, psychologist who studied a lot of abductees, like trying to figure out what's wrong with them and like trying to diagnose their mass hysteria and basically came out of it being like this happened to them. I can't see any other like right. these are not people that are delusional. They don't have other things that are going on with them, you know. So, so that's the piece of things that that feels interesting to me. Did you guys read that the op-ed by Rouse Doubtit in the New York Times where he's like, "This definitely never happened," but why does the government want us to think it happened right now? I mean, I think I think it's a good question of like, why now? But yeah. I think I think a lot of people are asking that question. But at the same time, they're ignoring the fact that actually there has been this growing like sense of it. Like Harry, there's always someone in the Senate who's like the guy. It used to be Harry Reid. Now it's Marco mm-hmm. Rubio, from my home <laughs> state of Florida. And, um, you know, there's always someone who's like really interested in this. You know, Harry Reid, of course, from Nevada, where a lot of this activity yeah. is right. reported. And, you know, he set up a commission that created the conditions for more information mm-hmm. there. So there over became, decades. Yeah. It's a like, it's, it's a progression. Like there, and, and basically it's like, re, it's reinforced itself, you know, like they put people in these roles in the Pentagon and now the people in those, in these roles are basically saying like, yeah, this is real. There's evidence of it. They, they specifically put people in these roles who like, don't care about UFOs, who like, aren't UFO people. They all come out UFO people and they all come out sounding crazy, to be honest. Like, <laughs> like people, like so many people, so many fucking men, honestly, sorry, like on, and I know that it's not like the rationalism is not like the realm, like the masculine realm or something, but a lot of people are just like, oh, he's saying all these crazy conspiracy things. I'm like, yeah, he just realized that aliens are real. And he has to explain to himself why that thing that had seemed totally impossible is not impossible. And like, there aren't, we don't have the literal scientific knowledge to to make a suitable explanation for that now. So like, yeah, he's probably going to say a lot of fucking weird things like <laughs> that this is from another dimension or it's us in the future or the Vatican or whatever, because it doesn't make sense otherwise, you know? Mm-hmm. Did you watch Tucker Carlson's like, or do you watch Tucker Carlson's Twitter show at all? I don't know. Okay. Well, one of the I'm early bad. ones was basically him saying like, <laughs> he was basically saying we have evidence of UFOs and instead the New York Times has chosen to talk about like, you know, some racial equity thing or something like that. Right. That was his <laughs> thing. But I was curious. I like it was interesting to me because the way that he framed it was basically like we have this mind blowing. Joe Rogan has done this, too, where he's like, why isn't the press talking about it? You know, like uh-huh. this has been the question of of many generations about whether we have and, and you know, hundreds of movies, everything like that, that now we have definitive proof and nobody cares. Right. And honestly, look, I'm not a fan of Tucker Carlson. Um, but like, I, I feel like the framing is interesting in my mind because I, it makes me wonder actually does nobody actually care about this? And then I do wonder why nobody cares about it because I will say that since I thought that when the times published that story, that it was game over, right. That we would be living in a different 
like a different world after that because the number one or most trusted news source had basically confirmed that aliens exist and I, my mind was blown you know i was like oh my god yeah, everything's yeah, real um and then it fizzled out nobody seemed to care about it and then i started getting a little more conspiratorial and i was like why does nobody care i i, <laughs> well, entered, I, mean, I entered the rogan brain you know where i was like well why is nobody talking about this you know why are we talking about affirmative action at Harvard every single day? That's, you know, whatever me, you know, but like, <laughs> like, why well, are we- I mean, like, I, I actually, I mean, you know, there's like that meme that's like, I got a lot. Are you not, are you not shocked? I've got a lot going on right now. Or whatever, <laughs> right, right, you know? right. But it's like, I, I totally get why people don't care. I mean, first of all, it's a long established. This is also like the part of this that I really love is like, whenever you hear one, like there's this big story about, a great Barrington, like a mass event where like all through um, Massachusetts uh, around great Barrington, there were several people like children who claim abductions and also like a ton of people who saw a craft, like people were calling into the radio show, like I see it, blah, blah, blah. And first of all, like they just re-recorded over it the next day. There's nothing in the police logs, despite all these calls, you know, that people were saying like something's happening it's not recorded because people feel stupid. And so like, like the, so, so this is like a big part of this story from the beginning is just like how much social pressure there is to not register it because of how stupid you look, you know, even to the point of like, just not logging this event, like not saving the tapes on the radio, like not thinking that this might be like of interest to someone or like not even eat, whether you believe in it or not, like, not putting a note in the police records for that night that there were all these calls about, you know, this craft that people were seeing, you know, and then of course, like you hear from the police chief or whatever, who's like, yeah, man, like all these people were calling and blah, 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 but we just didn't want to look stupid kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, and so like, I think I understand that part of it, but then I think the other side of it is just that like, it doesn't change anything. I mean, like the thing that is really happening, I mean, it's like, why doesn't anybody doing anything about the fact that we're like roasting to death. I mean, I don't know. I, it's like my colleagues are really ambivalent about this and are like looking to me cause they know this is like my thing to like explain it to them, you know, and they feel like a little bit afraid, like they don't really want to engage it. And I'm kind of like, well, the, the good news is, is like, this is just a registering of decades of like documented encounters, but like, our lives are the same. These, these encounters have been happening and they continue to happen. So it's kind of like, who cares? But if you're mm. somebody who, who doubted, who, who's not you, Ariel, <laughs> and didn't believe in this since they were seven years old, um, what does this kind of mainstream confirmation or affirmation of this you know, these, this strain of thought, these beliefs, like these reports, like mean, because I can also imagine that if people were opening themselves up to like that change, it could be really powerful, like spiritually. And I agree, you know, maybe it would intersect with like climate change and wars and it would, I don't know, would there be some sort of, I I mean, I'm not a spiritual person, but I don't know, would there be a change from our material realities if we actually like let that take hold? I don't know. I mean, I agree. I mean, this is why I believe in everything. I'm like, it's kind of more fun and it's more exciting. And it like just means that there's a sense of possibility in the world and, you know, things start to loosen up, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, even like the idea of like dealing with climate change, it's like, if there is like such a big galaxy, it just reminds us about the size of everything. And also like 
our conception of time might be not what we think. You know, it's like everything starts to get fuzzy yeah. around the edges. It it like changes the way you look at our world, you know? Yeah. So it's, I, I find it super exciting for that reason. I just think it can also be kind of destabilizing, which is probably one right. of the other reasons why people don't want to engage with it. Yeah, it's difficult sometimes too. One of my best friends got really into it for a while and I loved, you know, I adore him and I would never not want to hang out with him but there was a period of about six months or so where i would go to his apartment and he would have some thing queued up on the tv and be like how do you explain this ge perfectly geometric under the sea uh you know formation and i'd be like dude i just can we look i just, just yeah, I, yeah i promise i'm not like that <laughs> no, annoying. no 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 i'm not saying you i'm just saying that there i can i understand where you're saying like people kind of don't want to be that person you know yeah, yeah but um i do think that if there was i was i don't know have you seen akira right like i i i think that yeah. if there was like a if we if there was a narrative attached to it it wasn't just blips right if they're saying people have visited us from this this distant planet and here's what they were like. And here's a photo of like one of their bodies that we recovered. I think that there would be a profound cultural shift at that point, but that it would require something. It would require some sort of story attached to these blips. And right now, all we know is that they're blips, right? That are traveling really fast and that they're probably UFOs. That's, that's where I landed on it. I'm like 90% these are UFOs and I don't like, I'm not skeptical about it at all, but I mean, this is we don't where really you get know that into like, about it. Yeah, this is like where you get into like people who say they've had actual encounters and like right. what their experiences are. And like, there's like a question about whether these are like people or people, whatever, like beings, beings. that like just want to like study us and probe us and, right. you know, colonize <laughs> us and whatever, or whether like you think that these are people who are trying to like a lot of the stories that people tell are like warnings about technology and right. about mm -hmm. saving the environment or whatever like a lot of like mass Prophetic sightings or... with children are like they all have heard that message or whatever mm -hmm. um so you know i mean again like i i'm a, i'm agnostic on all of this you know um I'm just open to it. And and I don't know, like, I, I think it's possible that like, they are like humans, and that there are some of them who are doing this thing over here, and some of them who are doing that thing over there. And some of them are benevolent, and some of them are not. And I don't know. Uh, <laughs> the last question I'll have, I'll ask you about this is that, um, I don't know, did you, did you see Trump recently was saying, Hey, if I'm, he, he threatened it again. He said, if I'm president, I'm going to release all the JFK yes. stuff. And I was just like, dude, you didn't do it last time. Also, why didn't you do it last time? You know? Because he can't do it. <laughs> yeah, like, no, no, they no. don't. I mean, this was like one of the craziest things about the hearings, I feel like. Because even in the debrief story, it's so crazy. The one that where they, which first broke the story about Grush whistleblowing on having craft. Like there are people quoted in there with like, you know, who only use their fake name in the Pentagon, like no one knows who they actually are or whatever. And that those people are like fronts for all these other people. It's like, it's kind of completely crazy. Well, do you feel like given that now, you know, there's like a bipartisan push, right. To, and even a amendment that I think Schumer put in that uh, <laughs> basically will ask the executive branch agencies to hand over the, the records and that there are all these people asking, 
you know, like Chuck Schumer, say what you will about him, but he's not like a minor character. He certainly is not thought of as like being the yeah. crank, the crank of the Senate. Right. right. Um, yeah. This isn't uh, like Ron Paul asking or something like that. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, it's Chuck Schumer. Do you think there's going to be more information coming out of this? Or do I you- think there will be more information. I mean, I recommend this podcast. Uh, I'm sorry to do this, but I recommend the Ezra Klein podcast with Leslie Keene, who's the journalist who's been following a lot of this because also like Congress has a lot more testimony that just they have, which means that like their aides have seen it, which like means that it could be in a more like leaky environment now than it has been in the intelligence community. Um, But, you know, I mean, look, they're also like Rubio kind of slipped this provision into the omnibus bill, like at the end of 2018 or something, maybe 2020, I can't remember now, um, to for all of the intelligence agencies to release like everything they have on UFOs. And they didn't do it. And like they released a bunch of like really weird, hard to read stuff that was like impossible to like search or index or like it was all like redacted and in weird ways. And so, I mean, like the truth is, is like if people if nobody knows who the people are who have this information and there's no accountability, I mean, even you've already had people within the intelligence community pushing back and being like, this isn't true or whatever. So I don't know. I think we'll probably learn more because I think it's like hard to stop this train, but it just without knowing the structure of or like how deep it all goes, it's just really hard to know what we will and won't know. Yeah, it seems more. Yeah, it's really politically divided, too, where I feel like, you know, it's um, you think it's like coded right wing or something. Yeah, a little bit. Well, the Rubio thing (laughs) is kind of interesting, you know, well, because they think it's a national security issue. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, all right, let's switch gears. We did. Yeah, sorry we for did a sorry full half hour on UFOs. Time to say but... goodbye, audience. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was thinking. I was excited. thinking we would just do the whole hour on UFOs, but <laughs> I think we have some more to talk about. Which is, um, I don't know, Tammy. Do you want to? Do you want to start this one? Sure. Um, so, Ariel, the the initial reason we called you <laughs> was not to talk about the fact that you believe in everything, but um, obviously we, as a lefty podcast, have been watching what's been going on in Israel, and, you know, this is not necessarily a news story, but the worsening of democratic norms, the collapse of, you know, certain government safeguards there, it seems really concerning. Also, I'm sure a lot of us have had feelings seeing kind of like the national different forms of nationalism on display in response to all that. So we wanted to talk to you about how people stateside and in the diaspora, different diasporas, perhaps, um, should be thinking about this, you know, and what our reaction is here. Um, I'll just note, like, if people are paying attention to Netroots Nation and some of the politics in Congress, like Pramila Jayapal from my home state got in big trouble because she called Israel a racist state. And so we sort of see like these this loop of, you know, theater, right? And in response to, to her, there were all these combinations from both parties. Anyway, so I guess, how are you feeling? What is the team at Jewish Currents thinking, you know, kind of watching <sighs> these protests unfold? And what are we to do here? Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, there is like a segue from UFOs because it's like <laughs> from one very marginal position to another around Palestine. <laughs> no. But also like, I feel like it's very hard to be on the left and 
talk about these other kinds of things because you're like true. immediately discredited. My my board is always like, stop talking about UFOs. It's like we need to be really <laughs> buttoned up. Um, <laughs> uh, but here I am just transitioning from one to the other. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, huh, how do we think about it? I mean, maybe I'll just talk a little bit about like what exactly is going on there first yeah, for context. Um, I know you had Josh Leifer on the show and, and I know he gave a lot of really good context and he's really the person who is kind of like our reporter from the, you know, on what's going on in the ground. But uh, just for, if people haven't heard that episode, um, they have just, so there's a judicial overhaul uh, that is being undertaken by Netanyahu's coalition, which includes a lot of, um, I mean, it's, it's basically what people are calling a settler government. There are a lot of people in the coalition who live in uh, illegal outpost settlements and whose ultimate goal is to annex the West Bank, which they've essentially done. I mean, that has has basically happened. And to weaken the judiciary, which is the only check on the powers of the Knesset. Um, they don't have like the system that we have where, you know, you have an executive and a legislature, which is like bicameral and, and a court. They just have the Knesset and the court. The court is has not necessarily been um, the most helpful on issues of the occupation. Uh, and it has really tended to like give individual Palestinians who are petitioning the High Court of Justice, like throw them a bone as opposed to like dealing with the entire system um, with things that might like, th- like create a crisis on some level of legitimacy. Um, they've kind of become afraid of their own shadow in that, in that regard. Um, to really use their power, but they still have, um, there's still a sense that like to do what they want to do, what the right wing really wants to do, they need the checks and balances dispatched with. They say that this is like true democracy, um, that it's actually the will of the people and that the court is unelected, which is true. Um, And, uh, you know, much like our, our court. Um, And, uh, and so, you know, this is actually a democratic reform. Um, It's going to be very bad. I mean, these reforms are going to pass, in my opinion, like the first one just passed. I, I don't see them stopping, especially because Netanyahu needs the part of the coalition that wants these reforms, uh, in order for the government not to dissolve and go to elections, which would put him in danger of going to prison because he has um, a corruption charge that he's facing several. Um, um, So this is probably going to pass. There has been a huge political awakening. I mean, like, it's so crazy because you see these images and you're just like, this is amazing. This is inspiring. It's like something that you would want to see in the United States in terms of like the consistency and ferocity and yeah. sheer disruptiveness of these protests. I mean, the largest labor union, the Histadrut is like, you know, there was a general strike and 10,000 reservists in the army are saying that they won't serve. And um, a lot of uh, high tech uh, organizations are basically moving the businesses out of Israel or basically like disinvesting. Um, so it's kind of like crazy. It's like all this stuff mm-hmm. that like activists, especially like, diaspora activists have wanted for a long time. I mean, this is like some of this is straight BDS, you know, and yet it's a centrist movement, um, like very, very specifically. I mean, some of the things that we have seen 
in the week since the reasonableness clause passed, which is the first plank of the judicial overhaul, is a bill um, that makes it easier for villages and towns of more than 700 households to discriminate against uh, Arab people who might want to live there. So it's just like a legalization of housing discrimination. Like they can decide whether like people are not like in the character of their, in the social character of, of who they want in that village. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's like a, a bill that passed with support of the opposition and the ruling party. Another one like that is a, is a bill that passed where um, people who do like an act of sexual assault uh, quote unquote, like, with like racist intent or like with terrorist intent would get like double the sentencing or like harsher penalties, which basically is just a way of saying like, if an Arab rapes a Jewish person, they will be treated differently. Mm-hmm. The, the punishment will be, will be greater in effect. Um, so, and these are things again, that are passed with support from the opposition and, and the, the governing coalition. So, that's a long way of talking about what's happening on the ground there. Like the, there is like a small kind of anti-occupation block within the protests. They have even been like attacked by other, Mm -hmm. like more uh, militaristic uh, elements within the protests, like brothers in arms, which is like kind of a veteran group that's been very active. Um, And I think that there is like a sense of possibility and maybe even like a hope that, there's an awakening that could happen in this moment, particularly among younger Israeli Jews. Uh, but there isn't a broad hope that this movement is going to actually see or make the connection between the occupation and oppression of Palestinians yeah. and the the democratic rollback that is about to affect them. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's like the basic groundwork and sorry if that's like uh, repetitive to to some of the people listening but in terms of how that affects American Jews particularly which are the only group of Jews that I'm particularly qualified to speak about um, I think it's pretty profound in some ways um, how where do I start with that I mean maybe I'll start with like a weird example that may have nothing to do with anything but is <laughs> but like is sticking in my mind right now, which is that the American Anthropological Association, which is an academic group, just like passed a BDS measure, for example, a boycott, divestment and sanctions measure against Israel. In the past, this is the kind of thing that would have elicited so much and and actually did elicit so much um, opposition. And I think that the people who would normally be mobilized to oppose these kinds of things are just not mobilized to do that in this moment, especially because you have so many centrist Israelis who are essentially taking boycott or divestment measures in this moment to protest what's going on in the government. So there's enough confusion that some of the opposition Mm -hmm. is just kind of muted, uh, which creates an opening. I also just think like we have for the first time, like a lot of the polling just shows that for the first time, not just American Jews, American Jews generally, like a quarter to a third of all American Jews say openly that it's apartheid. Some of them even use stronger language, which seems like kind of crazy, like that it's genocide and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. um, according to the polling. So like 
you have definitely like a, a growing and, and those numbers were nowhere near that, like yeah, even a few years ago. So a lot this is higher than I would have thought. Yeah. It's a lot, a lot higher. And when, and the younger you go, the higher that number gets. And in a, the United States for the first time ever, uh, people, not just Jews, people are expressing more uh, sympathy with Palestinians than with Israelis, which is, that's totally unprecedented in American politics. And that's, and it's like, obviously more for Democrats than Republicans, but independents are a big part of that. And Republicans are not, not a part of that. I mean, it's, it's not a monolithic number. So I think we're like really about, I think we're on the cusp of a sea change in terms of public opinion. And the real question is basically like, is that going to be represented at all in in government, because right now there's a huge gulf between public opinion and and Congress. Right. Well, I, it's interesting to me because it's like I, I'm curious what you think, because um, I agree that there's a huge gulf because you can see it in how Jayapal was treated. Right. Like where right. it's like a same thing with Ilhan Omar, where exactly. there is a sort of we'll show you. You know, you got out of line and you're going to have to basically be marched around and apologize to right, everybody totally. um, or else, you know, like we're going to throw whatever you're we out. can at yeah. you. Um, and that I found that to be interesting. Every time these things happen, I find it to be like it just makes me uncomfortable because it seems like there is uh, there are not other instances where elected officials in Congress are asked to apologize to everybody in this sort of way, right? Like, yeah, it's um, very uncomfortable. Right? It's, yeah. it's the, it is the one thing that, that elicits this and people start asking why. And then, you know, uh, well, but the why is very right. simple, right? I mean, it's right, like, right. there's a huge lobby that has put unprecedented spending, particularly in democratic primaries, particularly against young progressive challengers. I mean, like if you look at basically like the last congressional election cycle, APEC, defeated a real a number of very strong progressive candidates that would have added to the kind of true progressive base in the con in Congress, you know, and and people are scared. It's just a lot of money that they can they, they can pour onto this issue and nobody wants to do it. I mean, I get this fucking horrible newsletter every morning that I have to read because it's my job now um, called Jewish Insider. And that whole newsletter just exists to like get Congress or get like candidates on the record about whether they're going to toe the line on Israel and put the bat signal out to donors if they are not. Mm -hmm. And there are so many of these packs now. It's not just a pack. It's like all their little cutouts, you know? Mm -hmm. So well, do you think that that type of, cause we had a, we had an incident here in Berkeley as well with the, at the law school, right? right. Where, um, and that one also, you know, like it, Basically, some groups on campus said that uh, that Zionists could not speak like on at at their events or at at on right. certain campus events, and that this led to certain you know sort of predictable hours. Like I don't like I generally think that barring people from speaking in college is probably a bad idea, but like still, you know, I was more interested in the response, yeah. and that there is this moment where it seems like. Look, there's always been censure around this topic, but it seems like at least the censure is getting much more attention now, right? Yeah. If nothing else, right? Like it is yeah. much more of a discussion point. I wonder if you felt like that was almost out of a point of weakness, given sort of some of the polling and some of the things that you're seeing. Like, do you feel like there's like a 
more of a that there's more attention put to this that maybe even the censure is more harsh now because some of the stuff is seen as being a moment of threat or or not like you know like yeah i mean i i do think that like zionist students on campus are losing the power that they once had do you know what i mean like both basically because there's just less like passive public opinion supporting them um but i also i mean maybe this is like tangential to your question on a certain level. I do think that this is probably very unpopular and particularly with Jewish Kearns readers. Um, I do think we have to ask the question of like what we do with those Zionist kids on campus. I mean, like, first of all, behind most anti- anti-Zionist Jews, if not all, but most is like a person who was once a Zionist because that is the community, especially if they're, I mean, particularly, I should say, just if they were raised in the Jewish community, because that is, and in certain cities, maybe in the community, in the community more than others, but because because that's that's, the prevailing opinion, that's the prevailing opinion, you know, and like, there isn't, I mean, I was a Zionist, a very ardent Zionist until I was older than I would care to admit on this podcast. uh, (laughs) And it had nothing to do with the rest of my politics. And in fact, prevented me from being Mm. a full participant in those politics. And I do think that some of the focus on the word Zionist, especially because like people don't, even Jews don't really know what it means. Like for them, it's an identity marker more than it means what it actually means, which is this now, what it actually means now in practice, which is this apartheid system based in Jewish supremacy. And I just kind of wonder, I mean, like, I do think that on a certain level, you could say that the anti-Zionist sentiment and and also like the kind of Palestinian solidarity movement won in Berkeley. And also like it generates a lot of backlash for people who are sorting through their identity that like don't really know what to do with it. I'm not saying that those are the important people in the equation, like maybe it's enough to just ignore them. But I do think that eventually we're going to have to ask the question of like how some of these, especially in this, I mean, particularly in this moment, like actually before this moment, it's kind of like there's no, there's nothing pushing them to our side. And so like maybe we just deal with like the people who are more passively with us or who would put up less, like maybe we just don't need Jews, you know, in this movement right now as like a large group or whatever. But I kind of feel like in this moment, because of what's happening in Israel and because of the opening that that's providing and because of the shift in public opinion around that in the United States, like we actually have an opportunity to grow the movement in a really meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And it's just very hard to do that because nobody who's been meaningfully kind of like converted on this issue will kind of speak to where they were before. And, and, And also like the Palestinian movement is not really interested in in like these kids, yeah. which like, I don't think that they should be or whatever, but it just makes things, you know. Well, can you say what the crack was for you that opened you up to this? Um, Like many people, like 20, the 2014 Gaza war was like a really big moment for me. And I, I mean, I grew up with a lot of lines about like Israel being like the most moral army in the world. And that like, you know, mm-hmm. that they, go house to house and like they put them, even though if they're doing bad things, they put themselves in danger so that they don't have to like carpet bomb or whatever. Like every one of those 
lines just was like so patently disproven by just like paying a little bit of attention to what was going on in, in 2014. And I mean, I think one of the main things that like actually put the crack in there was watching um, Israelis drag like sofas up to this hill that overlooks Gaza and like have these parties watching the bombs fall, you know, like there, it was like becoming like a social, right? you know, and I was like, oh, this is a society that is in like deep, deep crisis. Like mm -hmm. this is so contrary to the story that I've been told about how they engage with this like quote unquote conflict that they've been given. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. So, I mean, not the thing that I wanted to say about Zionists on campus is not just like that we need to talk to Zionists on campus. I mean, anyway, I think, right, leftists, we need to, as leftists, we need to like think about right. how we grow our movements yeah. or whatever. But I, organizing is good. Yeah. yeah. But I also think like it's important because every, nobody thinks that a two state solution is going to happen. And yeah. like the only thing left is a, is, one state with equality and like an actual program of meaningful reparations and, you know, decolonization, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, you need to talk to Zionists because the entirety of Israeli society is, is Zionist. Yeah. And so like, there is this question of like, how do we start? How does the Palestinian national movement, which I cannot speak to at all, and also how to, leftist organizers who are involved in this issue start to speak to that question. And I think that the American Jewish community is actually like a trial balloon in that regard, mm -hmm. you know, and we're kind of like passing it up. You had linked us to a couple of pieces about some internal fights within DSA over mm -hmm. the position that, that they should take with regards to Palestine. And, um, I guess like without getting too much like into the internal politics of like DSA, which can be a very messy space um, yeah. on a lot of fronts. I guess I'm, I'm curious like what that conversation indicates for this kind of, you know, conversation that you are, you're saying we should maybe consider, you know, having with people who are, you know, we're generally kind of like under the same tent on most political issues. And so can we kind of like speak to a community that may consider itself Zionist or at least like express Zionist views with regards to, you know, the Israeli state. Um, yeah. Are there lessons from, from, from those fights? I don't know. And anything I say, I'm going to get in trouble, but I, <laughs> but I, I do think that, I mean, on the one hand, it's like, why should Palestinians wait, you know? And I, I've seen a lot of Palestinians say this, like, why should they wait for, like chicken shit Congress people afraid for their seats to decide that it's worth their while yeah. to, to care about them and do what's right or whatever. And why shouldn't the like main kind of pre-party formation of the left or whatever uh, speak to that and speak to those issues? But I mean, you know, at the same time, it's just like, this is the question about what, about DSA strategy. And as a person who's not actively organizing in DSA, I don't feel like I have like the answer for what they're going to be. But it seems clear that if they are going to do any electoral organizing, then they have to think about what this issue means to them. Cause you literally can, there's very few people that you can endorse. Yeah. And, and the thing that has like, just because again, the, the, the space that we talked about between Congress and public opinion is just so wide. And I think it's like, I think the thing that keeps happening with this issue in DSA is just that it exposes how weak DSA is. 
Because if DSA actually had the organizing power to tell candidates, this is going to make or break you with us. And we are the ground force. We're the canvassers. We're the people who are actually going to put this into, uh, you're you're either going to be elected or not based on the strength of our ground game. If DSA could say that, then they could also take these positions that you have to kind of adhere to their party line around BDS and et cetera, et cetera. But they don't have that power. And so like how you maneuver when you do the analysis of the power that they do actually have is a different question. And like whether they, you know, I think like with Jamal Bowman, they were mad at Jamal Bowman because he voted, I think, for the Iron Dome and also because he went on a J Street trip. Right. Um, and never mind the fact that like, I mean, I'm no, I'm not like a big J Street person, obviously. Like that's not my political home, <laughs> you know. Uh, but like going on that trip actually moved Bowman farther left on this issue because he like went to Palestine. He saw it for himself what was going on and it contributed to him voting differently on other issues. I could be getting this wrong actually in terms of what it was that he, no, I think it was that he initially voted. I may have to come back to this, but basically suffice to say without all the facts in front of me that he voted on something that was like beneficial to Israel initially and then backtracked. Um, where he was like one of the only people who didn't vote with Israel. So, you know, I mean, like now what DSA has done is they've like ruined their relationship with him. And he's basically like, I don't care, yeah. you know? And so they, they've they like destroyed their He's still their a dues-paying member, but he doesn't <laughs> care right. whether he gets the endorsement or not. Right. And so like, it's kind of like, I don't know, you know, I don't know what you do with that. I think it's like a question for DSA organizers about like what kind of power they can actually deliver on, you know, I mean, like Palestine is always like, I, I mean, Hussein, who's, who's one of the organizers of decolonize this place said to Jewish currents a long time ago. And um, when we did our, we did a occupy oral history um, that, you know, Palestine is like the litmus test of what's possible. It's like the, it's like the, the limit case of like what leftist politics can achieve at any given moment. And um, it's just interesting to think about that limit case, being the case that is like now kind of like what people are trying to stake party discipline on. Mm -hmm. Um, So it'll just be interesting to see. I mean, again, it's not like a limit case to Palestinians. Like they're just living in shitty situations. Like they want to be free. Yeah. Um, So. I wanted to ask you like one sort of unrelated question, which is it's something that Tammy and I think about quite a bit, which is that I think some of the reason why I've always been interested in Jewish currents is because I think it's at different scales, you have similar mission and it's sometimes hard to like almost th- uh, pull it apart. Right. Which is that like, well, how do you have a outlet that tries to put out a specific politics around an identity group? And, you know, that's basically what we do, right. For, for mm-hmm. Asian people. But that one of the planks of it or one of the core beliefs is that like the sort of identity group is kind of silly, you know, (laughs) in some ways. Right. That like uh, and that the worst thing possible would be like a type of nationalism that came out of it. Right. Which is like, hey, you know, we're all the we're the Asian leftists or we're the Asian American leftists or even I mean, I think if it was like the Korean American one, it would make a little bit more sense. But like, you know, like Asian American leftists is like a. First of all, there's like nine people, but secondly, like it's like uh, 
you know, those, those well, nine we have people. slightly more than nine people. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But, um, but that it's been interesting to me to always think in the past three years, it's just been like, well, like, what are we really doing? I don't That's really even program, believe Asian yeah. American is a real thing. But the only thing that convinces me that Asian American is a real thing is that we have like a lot of listeners who believe, you know, who <laughs> are Asian American and they listen to this thing and that they get some meaning out of it. They talk to us about it, you know? And so, um, but that if you ask me if that thing was meaningful, I would say, yeah, it's meaningful to me, but I would, you know, like from an objective standpoint, I'd say like, maybe it's not meaningful, you know, like maybe there should be other moments to organize. And then I think, well, what the fuck are we doing then? You know? Oh my <laughs> like, God. You're literally I, just like narrating. Like, <laughs> right, right. I, I mean, imagine that these are thoughts. Like when I started listening to this podcast, yeah. I was just like, oh, they're just like, they're just us. But <laughs> yeah, Asians, they're just like us. Um, no, I, yeah, I mean, I don't have an answer for you. Obviously, it's just this like, we're like constantly like trying to like unravel Jewish currents and then put it back together or something. Mm. It's like, I mean, I don't know if this is the question you're asking, but like, it sounds like you might be asking a question of like, why organize as Jews? Like, well, not even that. It's, issue? yeah, but like, you know, like, because there are obviously there are going to be people who are more predisposed to listen or to read, right? Mm hmm. I think that's very true with us too. And that I guess I was just wondering how you navigated through all that, right? Which is really just, it's not an action question. It's really just more like of a feels question, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. 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 I mean, one thing I will say is that Jews have been really good at creating a false unity that I think is a little more fragmented, maybe like with Asian American. Right. Culture, you know, like where it's like you have all these people from all these different places. And in the US, that's like also true, right? Like I'm, my grandparents are from different places than like a lot of other Jewish people or whatever. And that, and that there's a huge gulf between like the Mizrahi, like mostly Moroccan community that I grew up in, although I am not myself Moroccan, although I am Sephardi. Um, and like, you know, people who have been in the US for, whose families have been in the U S for a million years and whatever, five generations, whatever. Yeah. But they Jews have really invested in being Jews and in like, in like kind of determining the meaning of that. And so like, for example, like I met, I've always been like amazed at this experience of like meeting a Jewish person while I was traveling. It was like from Australia and like, they went to like a summer camp that is exactly like mine and we all mm -hmm. know the same songs and whatever. And it's all constructed to be clear. Yeah. Like, it's not like, it's not like the songs that we learned are like a deep part of our individual, like <laughs> cultural heritage or whatever. Like mine is completely different from his, you know, but they've succeeded in telling a story that, you know, that has created some sense of totally. peoplehood. Right. Yeah. And it's not, that easy because all peoplehood is constructed all nationalism is constructed it's not that easy to just unravel it mm -hmm. you know like it actually has real instantiations i mean one of those real instantiations is just that like jews are very organized into groups already and if you don't try to work within those groups you're just passing up the opportunity to organize those people where they it's like yeah. you know it's like it's like organizing churches that's why like the right is so successful it's like you have this group that already exists and has this thing that coheres them that's internal 
and you just get them to do stuff together. They love to do stuff together. You know, <laughs> Jews right. love doing stuff together. You know, and the alternative is like a type of forced, embarrassing type of like, I don't know, like a color blindness, I guess totally. is not the correct word. But when I, whenever I meet Asian people who are in denial about being Asian, yeah, even especially on the left, I think, where they're just like, well, I'm not interested in identity politics, but I'm just like, look, I, I get it. I'm kind of that guy, but like at the same time, like it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous that to deny it to a point where you feel like it has no interesting organizing or at least even social parameters to it that are useful in terms of trying to talk about the politics themselves. Right. And that, yeah. um, it's just so uncomfortable. Otherwise, I guess that's the thing where I get where it's just like, when I meet somebody like that, I'm just like, I don't know, man, you know, like, uh, Korean people do have a lot of stuff in common if they grew up here in the United States. And, um, well, you just don't want to deny like history and like, and, and history in the most specific, you know, like not, not like the story of history or like, you know, the, the necessarily unified or whatever sanitized story, but like the actual history, you don't want to deny some kind of culture like to the extent that it's real i mean we are so suspicious of things that people call jewish culture i mean like there's like whole (laughs) internet accounts that we just like actively roast all day on our slack that's just like you know whatever bagels and seinfeld judaism which like by the way i like both of those things a lot you know but (laughs) uh, it's like the boba liberal version of it yeah Yeah, exactly the weird thing about koreans is that like there's no alternative to the kind of like you know like kimchi and and church type of thing you know uh-huh. version of it because it, that one actually is probably true <laughs> so true <laughs> but also it's like i can't i can't even think of what the alternative would be you know i don't i don't want it to be these people who like talk about comfort like it's not wrong to talk about comfort women you know like the people who sort of like trauma like only talk about historical trauma well that's what i was gonna say i think there is that version right yeah right but that version i like am exhausted well we're trying to do like i I don't think you're trying to do something else but i just don't want to talk about like just 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 to like complain about your conversation when you talked about my grievance piece not to like really complain (laughs) about it. i was so flattered that you talked about it but like i think you said something i wrote a piece about the exactly this like the pitfalls mm-hmm. of identifying yeah. too much with a kind of like grievance that is built into a certain kind of identity that like then kind of never wants to be resolved or whatever and you were like well the, but there's no solution for how to get out of it and i think actually like i do have a solution for the jewish world in particular which is just like we have a ton of infrastructure that we can literally change how that infrastructure works like we can change like all of these Jews are walking around with a similar worldview that was just like literally given to them, you know, particularly around Zionism. And so we have this hulking structure that we can literally change, but I don't know that there is anything at all comparable in like the fragmented, like Asian American. Yeah, there's nothing, but within, I mean, basically it would have to be like within Koreans, it would be obviously the church, right? The Korean Mm -hmm, church, but, um, even the Korean church is a pretty, like, there's no, I don't think there's a really monolithic experience of that. You know, it's, uh, um, it's more monolithic than most churches, but at the same time, I think it would be, it's also like the hardest thing to try and infiltrate and change because it's, 
in some ways, even though we all grew up, I mean, I grew up going, Tammy did too, every, I think, right, Tammy? Or at least you went mm-hmm. to Korean church sometimes, a right? Bit, yeah. I went to Korean church sometimes. Every Korean person went to, like, even if your parents are atheists, they would probably take you to Korean church. It's still like completely, it feels foreign, I think, um, to a lot of people once they leave it, right? Like, it mm-hmm. becomes almost impenetrable. Um and, yeah, I just uh, give it like yeah. a few decades when you're like at the Jewish point and it's all liberalizing and like is just kind of like window dressing anyway. I was going to say, well, yeah, I think that yeah. exists, that it sort of is that. And, you know, it's like these are all just like fields, like social fields that you can kind of use for whatever purpose. Right, yeah. right, right. So, yeah, we'll just use it for our purpose. Yeah. yeah. Radicalize <laughs> the Korean church. <laughs> that's the, Not the that's church the message itself, of but this, the members, uh, I guess. Yeah. yeah. That would be wild. Ariel Angel from Jewish Currents is here to tell you to radicalize the Korean church. There, there must be at least one like radical Korean church pastor, don't you think? Like, who, I'm like, sure. Definitely. Yeah. There There's has a to bunch be. of social justice church, and right. the same in Taiwanese and other in Chinese right. communities. That would be a too. good profile. Uh, Tammy, <laughs> yeah, wanna, find them. I know a few. If you're interested, for it? oh well, you should do it then. <laughs> I would read. I would read the hell out I'm of that article. I'm allergic to church. I think it would be very hard to. Um, yeah, you might you might be you might let a little bit too much seep through, you know. <laughs> <laughs> mine would be too mine would be too fawning. It would be like, hey, this is great, you know. Yours would be like, but God isn't real. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But aliens are. Yeah, but, but aliens, aliens are. are. All right, that's yeah. a good place that's to wrap up. <laughs> um, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you for having me. Um, really a pleasure. Uh, we do this every week. Uh, I am now back, so we should be even more consistent now. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I don't even know. I have nothing to say about my month in Hawaii, except that it was wonderful. And I would like to move there at some point, but in the future, like, is it, would it be, I, I, there was a period when I was in my twenties where I went surfing every day and I was convinced at that time that like, it was great to go surfing all the time and that was the only reason why people should live and there's this documentary that came out around then about this family that um actually it was interesting where like the father had gone um to israel on a trip and he had surfed there for the first time um Mm -hmm. and he had sort of something had happened i don't remember when but it was something where he had witnessed this like horrible trauma right like wartime trauma And that when he came back, he was convinced that the only reason to surf was, or the only reason to live was to surf. And so I think he had something like 10 children and he bought an RV and he just had them drive up and down the California coast and go around the world and surf every single day. And his like mission was basically like, I'm just going to, my kids are going to do nothing except surf every day. They're not going to go to school or anything like that. It was this fascinating documentary where they show some of the- yeah, yeah. They show some of the kids now. It's it was called Surfwise, the documentary. They show some of the kids now, and the kids are like fucked up. <laughs> as you can, as you can I mean, yeah, it's like a radical, radical anyway, decision to make for the kids. At the time when I watched the documentary, I was like, those kids need to stop fucking complaining. You know, <laughs> their father gave them this great gift. They're so good at surfing. You know, like, like the only one who seemed to be normal at all was like one of the girls who. Um, just married a really rich guy, rich guy. And that, was, that was the only way that she could get out of it because they obviously all lived in like poverty because even though the father was a doctor, yeah, I was say. Like he would make his job basically like being a country doctor in the next place that they went to. Um, 
Yeah, but now I think about it, I'm like, that's probably not, you know, I don't think I could do that anymore, even though I think about it. I'm like, could I just surf too old. and do nothing else? Um, but yeah, I'm not. It sounds bad to me. Yeah, at the time, yeah, it was better at surfing, much. and I think it was more realistic. This time, uh, after surfing every day for a while, what I realized was like, it's going to be s- impossible, actually, for me to be able to get back in shape like I was in my mid-20s. Wow, this is like a real surf. time to say goodbye thing, like surfing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tammy went in Korea. I'm surfing. Garbage at it, but Jay actually knows how to do it. No, I don't. <laughs> That's my point. Like, it's, it's all gone now. So, um, yeah. Anyway. If you'd like to support our show, it's $5 a month at goodbye.substack.com or patreon.com slash TTSG. And if you'd like to contact us, it's time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Until next week, we will see you. And thank you for coming on, Ariel. Thanks. And subscribe to Jewish Currents. I'm supposed to say that. Oh, yeah. That's right. (laughs) Subscribe to Jewish Currents. All right. Bye. Bye.